All right. First Peter chapter one. Beginning a new series. I will allay your fears. I think. I hope. Um, <clears throat> the first two sermons will only be one verse apiece. That is not going to be the way it's all going to happen. So we will not be in First Peter until Jesus returns, I think. Um, we will pick up the pace after the first couple of, uh, of verses just to get a little more oriented in what uh, this letter is about and kind of how it connects with us and who we are. And so uh, this morning we're just doing verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that this was written for our instruction, that this was written that we might endure, and through the encouragement of the scriptures like these, we would have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, we ask that you would grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, uh, through even these scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the scriptures. Amen. Uh, yesterday, um, I had the great and awesome privilege of dropping my car off at uh, Nation's Auto to have uh, some recall work done on the van. And because I had other things to do, I got a ride on their shuttle van. It was exciting. It was partially exciting because I sat and talked with Maria, who was the driver of this van. And Maria was an older lady um, who was, I think, a third-generation Mexican-American. And so we talked a little bit, and she um, mentioned to me in part uh, that when she was a kid, uh, that her parents and grandparents were trying to encourage them to take any, any and all possibilities, options to uh, become better assimilated into American culture. Their parents wanted them uh, to be American. And she had experienced, of course, uh, some repercussions uh, from some people. Um, but all immigrants, regardless of uh, from whence they come, whether it's just across the border or from around the world, uh, struggle between the two cultures, the one from which they come and the one they find themselves in. And there are great pressures that are upon them. There's sort of an internal pressure to uh, preserve the heritage of the past as well as a pressure often from without to assimilate, to become part of the larger culture they find themselves in at that moment. This is what this is about. What we find in this letter from Peter is largely going to be about that tension that the Christians were experiencing between preservation and the external pressure to assimilate, kind of like the, Bor the, Blor ah, the Borg. See, that I was spontaneous and I blew it right there, okay? We experience that. Let's think about this as we go on. But first, let's get a little oriented to this letter, and it starts off 
letting us know who wrote it. The author, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter here, as in this greeting, lets them know which Peter is writing to them because it could be any number of Peters. It's the one who happens to be an apostle. It is the one who was the fisherman who spent time in Judea and Galilee with Jesus of Nazareth. It is the Peter who betrayed, or not betrayed, but denied Jesus three times. It is the Peter that was reinstated by Jesus along the Sea of Galilee. It is the Peter who was one of the lead apostles within the church of Jerusalem who then went out and was essentially an apostle primarily to Jews, but we also know from Acts that he was not afraid to talk to Gentiles. Witness Cornelius' household. He mentions this, not so they know simply which Peter it was that was writing to them, but that he is writing to them as an apostle. Now let's note for a second, he's not writing as the apostle, like the only apostle. He's not writing as the most important apostle. He's an apostle. And so he is on the same level as John and as, as Paul and the other apostles. He's not in a special status or exalted status above them, but he writes from within the company of apostles that Jesus has appointed. But he invokes this so that they know that this is not simply an update, a hi, how you doing, hope it's going well. Uh, he's not uh, telling them what life is like for him because you know almost nothing about what life is like for Peter through this letter. There's just a little bit at the very end. And that's it. This is not a uh, end-of-the-year Christmas letter that so many of us uh, send out, uh, which I didn't, and so I'll probably blog mine soon. Um, this is not that. This is an authoritative letter that Peter is writing to them, that addresses them, that addresses their situation or circumstances in the power of Christ's authority for their good and for God's glory. And so the letter that he writes to them, it's not good advice. It's God's Word. He speaks as one who has the authority of Jesus Christ, the one who is saved the audience. So who's the audience? Well, this is written specifically to those, and I'm going to skip over that, um, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so Paul lists these regions uh, that are part of the, as well as the province of Asia itself, to which he is writing. Now, if you were to, to go on your map at home, you wouldn't find it, any of these places listed. Or if you looked for the province of Asia, you would instead find the continent of Asia, and it's not that. We think of this in terms of the terms Asia Minor, where the, the contemporary, the, the current country of Turkey is located. And so these regions are in the northern part of what we call Turkey. Okay. So he's writing to people who are dispersed or scattered within these regions. 
They are, in other words, a minority. They are not a majority. This means, among many things, that they lack power. They lack influence. The things that we as Americans tend to prize. They didn't have them. And so, here we have Peter, who is writing to them to encourage them. These people are probably largely Gentile. There are a couple of clues to that, as we'll find as we, as we read the rest of this letter. And what's interesting here is that he uses the word diaspora, that is tra- the, the dispersion, or the scattered ones, which was a term that was used largely of Jews who had been forced out of the promised land. And these, these are the Jews that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, from exiles and everything else. So these are the Jews who didn't live in the homeland of the Jews, so to speak, but the Jews who lived elsewhere. And he's applying that concept to them. He's applying that concept to them, I think, for a couple of reasons. And, and one of which is they're now experiencing much of what those Jews experienced. Those Jews were typically not welcome in Gentile territory. There was, in that part of the world, a high degree, just as there is now, of anti-Semitism. These people were different. We don't like them. We want them away from us. And so these Christians, uh, because they followed, from a worldly perspective, a Jewish rabbi had now joined, in a sense, the disgrace of the Jews. And so Peter is writing to them as, again, not just people who don't have political power, but people who are ostracized. People who are minimized. Why is he writing to them? Peter prepares them to live faithful lives in a faithless place. And that's really the theme of this whole sermon series on the the first letter of Peter. Because he wants us to also live faithful lives in what is an increasingly faithless place. And as he seeks to do this, how he describes them is incredibly important. Not just the idea of the Jews of, I mean, these people of the dispersion, but the idea that I left out earlier, the fact that they are elect exiles. Here's kind of the logic that I want us to kind of pick up on through this. Identity creating lifestyle. Who you are determining how you live. And we do this uh, all the time. For instance, some of you are teachers. That's part of your identity. It's not all of your identity, but certainly it has a major impact on who you are and what you do. It establishes the rhythm of your life. Right? 
you get those two months off that people who don't understand what it's like to be a teacher think are like gravy days. <laughs> okay? But your, your life is built in this rhythm of education, the school year. There are times where there's intense work and there's times and when there's not as much work. There's an accountant over here. That's part of who he is. And his life is shaped in a different way by the tax year, not the academic year. And so he has different periods that are, are in, in, involved in uh, increased work and workload and longer hours. And I think he's in one of those right now uh, with uh, the brand new year. Um, who I am, what I do, shapes my life for better or for worse. That's the idea that Paul, uh, Peter rather is, is trying to press into them. It's how they think of themselves that is going to determine how they live in their circumstances. It's, in a sense, picking up that notion that we see in Romans 12 that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so in the midst of their circumstances, how they think about themselves in those circumstances are going to determine largely how they respond to those circumstances. And that is present throughout this entire letter. It really, I think, organizes uh, Peter's thought through this. And so let's get to a real sermon so to speak. I only have two points from this point on. And the first part of that is that we have been chosen in Christ for God's glory. This is the aspect of our identity with respect to God. Who we are in His eyes, they were elect or chosen. That's a word that makes some people chafe. Um, Maybe not as many people in this room as in many churches, but nonetheless, this is their status. They believe in Christ because they have previously been chosen by God. Or to put it another way, they chose Christ because God chose them first. Now, you might look at this and go, where do you get it from that word? And of course, I'm not getting it from that word in and of itself, but how that word is used throughout Scripture. Okay? For instance, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says that they were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And so we have this notion that comes through in Paul's letters that election is the basis for their salvation. Now again, they're chosen in Christ. And so they're chosen for salvation in union with Jesus Christ. It's not as though God chooses to save them apart from Christ or irrespective of Christ. It's always in Christ, but God is the one who has chosen before the creation 
of the world that we would have a share in the eternal Son of God who was going to take on flesh and bone to be the Messiah, to live and to die for a people. A lot of people stumble with that. They can think that this notion of predestination can lead us to a form of spiritual pride. Look at me. I'm chosen. I'm better than you. That's something along those lines. But that is a gross misunderstanding of at least how the Scriptures put forth this notion. It is not intended to pump us up and, and, and stroke our pride, but rather it is intended to humble us. Okay? When Paul, uh, sorry, when Peter speaks of this, this notion of being elect, if they have a, if they have an understanding of the Old Testament, particularly of Deuteronomy, they should go to the two passages that Mark read for us this morning in our Old Testament reading. And there we see this notion that, that he has chosen Israel for his treasured possession. Okay. And so there, there is that, there is a special status. It's there. Okay. They're a treasured possession of God's, but the reason why they are a treasured possession should not promote pride. As we see in Deuteronomy 7, he says, Don't think that I chose you as mine because you were so many, because you were a great nation, because you were populous, and that you were, had the power and the ability to remove these nations from the land of Canaan. Don't think it's because you're great. And then in Deuteronomy 9, he continues and he says, you're going to press, you're going to push out the Canaanites, but don't think it's because you're righteous. He reminds them it's because of the greater wickedness of the Canaanites. But he reminds them of their own wickedness, of their own stiff naked, uh, stiff, stiff, Nakedness, yeah, I wanted to make sure I didn't, I didn't go all Kentucky on you and go in a different, you know, kind of direction there. That they're proud and that they're obstinate. And so they're receiving this status as, as special possession of God despite the fact that they are themselves unrighteous. They are undeserving of this status. And then it gets weird, so to speak. Confusing might be a better word for it. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 8, we see <clears throat> that he loved... And he chose Israel, and by extension, I would say, this is the same for us, he loved and chose us because he loved them. Does that make any sense? He set his love on them because he loved them. It seems almost circular. But there's something in um, 
Luther's uh, Heidelberg Disputations that I think connects this. He says, the love of God does not find, but rather creates that which is pleasing to it. In other words, he's saying that God's love exists for us. We are recipients of his, of his love, not because we are pleasing to him, but he makes us pleasing because he loves us. The closest thing I can think of to that is the love of a parent for its chi- their child, their children. Held that little baby right there, snuggled her up. She hadn't done a thing but poop her diapers and cry. But I loved her. And no one was going to take her away. No one was going to hurt her. She was my treasured person. Just like all my kids are my treasured people. I love them. And it's not because they've done something for me. It's not because of who they are and what they might do. It's just because I'm their dad and I love them. And that is the notion that is found here in Deuteronomy. I loved you because I chose to love you. Not because you're special, but I'm going to make you special. That's what's going on. Secondly, some can stumble over this idea of predestination because, and I hear this from my Arminian brothers all the time, is that it can lead us to a uh, um, lack of obedience, a laziness, so to speak, loose living. Well, if you know you're saved because you're elect, who cares how you live, is basically how it goes. And again, that would remove the notion of election from its biblical context. For we see, let's go back to Ephesians 1. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Why? So that we might be holy and blameless in Him. That that we would not only receive uh, imputed righteousness, but that we would then begin to be personally righteous. Because of his grace. And so election is unto holiness as a part of salvation. It's the same thing that we see in Deuteronomy. What does he say? My holy and chosen people. They've been set apart by God as his special treasure. And then he says, therefore, because I have redeemed you out of Egypt, walk in my ways, obey my laws, In other words, be holy and blameless before me. And so again, we see in the Old Testament, it's just as as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1, they were chosen, redeemed, called to holiness. It's a chain that's made to be there. And we have to respect that chain. And so in both Deuteronomy and Ephesians and here in 1 Peter, election is intended to lead us to holiness. That our status as God's chosen people is intended to produce 
behavior, lifestyle that reflects that status that God has given us in His grace. And that really, that is the mindset of grace. That we live out what we've been given by faith. And that in doing so, we also rest in His abundant provision through the Holy Spirit. That is a gracious mindset. That is the mindset that God intends to implant in us through the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit together. But we struggle with this legal mindset that it seeks to gain status on the basis of our performance so that obedience produces grace. That's what we struggle with. The Gospel has it the other way around. We have a status that we receive freely from God's hand, and that status is meant to then inform how we live the rest of our lives as we receive grace. And so in the midst of the trials that they were going to experience, and they were experiencing, and that we will experience, we need to remember that we have been chosen by God. Secondly, not only are we chosen or elect, we are Aliens or exiles. We are aliens where we live, no matter where we live. He calls them exiles, and that's probably not the best translation of this word. Probably uh, better to call it sojourner or alien. We might say resident alien. Um, they, they did have a status in the Old Testament. Don't let some people mislead you that they didn't have anything regarding borders back then. They had borders. And so this is the idea of a status as alien, as one who is a foreigner who is living in your midst and who does not have all of the rights of citizenship. That's very important for us as we move forward. Sojourners are people who have left their home in order to live somewhere else. We have an alien in our midst. Actually, she's not here this morning. Sharon is still a citizen of India. Okay? One day, she might become an American citizen. And if she does, then she gets certain privileges that she does not currently enjoy, like voting. After this election, I'm not sure that's a privilege. (laughs) But... uh, She gets it, (laughs) and she can use it as she wants, Um, or not use it like Colin Kaepernick. Um, But she's come from somewhere else. She's, She's legally here, and she has many benefits from being here, including, you know, hanging out with Alex and Zeke. Um, But she doesn't have all of the rights that Alex has because Alex is a citizen. Okay? That's all. Aliens and strangers, this phrase really addresses our identity, not in relationship to God, but it addresses our identity in relationship to the culture that's around us, the people that's around, that are around us. We are aliens and strangers to them. This is not a, a, a thing that Paul, or sorry, that Peter just kind of pulled out of nowhere, but we see that Abraham himself in Genesis 23, when he's getting ready to buy the funeral plot for his beloved wife, called himself a sojourner and foreigner. 
That Abraham recognized that he didn't fit in, that he stood out to the rest of them. He was different. And while he had the promise of that land, they currently had that land. And in fact, that land was not really the issue. For we see in Hebrews 11, as we read earlier, these people died in faith. Who are these people? That large number of folks that were in the hall of faith, people like Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of these, he's saying, these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. I can see it coming in the distance, but it has not arrived. It's like the train coming down the track. You can see the light of the, of the train as it moves towards you, but it hasn't arrived yet. Okay? having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Not just on the, in, in, in the nation they happened to find themselves in at that point in time, but he's saying, on the earth. This is not our home. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, and in Abraham's case, that's Ur, they would have had opportunity to return But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, which is earlier called the city that God God is the architect and builder of that city. Okay, And so we have to reckon with this notion that this is not our home, this is not where we're laying our stakes And that means that we don't, we, we have to resist to some measure the pressure put on us to assimilate. We'll kind of explore that in the months to come, so I'm not going to get all of it right now. There are ways in which we have to fit in, but then there are ways in which it is inappropriate for us to fit in. And that's what we're going to explore. But Like the Jews before them, these Christians didn't fit in anymore. They used to fit in. But now, because they worship Christ, everything has changed for them. Who they are has changed. What they do has changed. And they no longer fit into the community that they used to fit in. But think for a moment. A lot of immigrant populations, what happens? They move into one part of town. Okay. Chinatown. Almost every major city in America has a Chinatown, right? Okay. I got lost in Boston's Chinatown once. We kept going in circles. <laughs> it was not fun. Boston also has the North End. What is North End basically? Little Italy. That's where all the Italians went. And uh, I keep seeing the, the thing about the Great Molasses Flood in the North End of Boston about a century ago. So... Um, but what happens is they go to those communities and they, they sought to preserve, the first generation anyway, preserve as much as they could about their own culture, their own language, their own customs and ways of doing things, their own morals. 
And then over time what happens is they begin to assimilate and spread out into the general public and become almost unrecognizable. Okay? But during those early years, what usually happened? Well, you had a lot of WAP jokes. You don't know what a WAP is? I'm a WAP. Supposedly without papers. But you have a lot of ethnic jokes, a lot of ethnic hatred, because those people are different and they stand out because they speak differently and they act differently. And so what Paul, or Peter, I keep, I'm going to do that for like months now, aren't I? Um, what Peter is getting at is that we, they were, and we by extension, were surrounded by people who don't understand them, who don't agree with them, and may not like them and try to hurt them. Like those early Christians, we are surrounded by pluralists who reject our exclusivity because we say Jesus is the, is the way, that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Okay? There were lots of faiths in Asia Minor, just as there are lots of faiths in the United States of America. What happens then and I think now is reflected in the book Culture of, Di of Unbelief by Stephen Carter. It was written over 20 years ago, and I've just finally now pulled it off my shelf and I'm reading it. And it's this notion that uh, legally and politically, okay, because that's what he's examining, because he's a, a law he was a law professor at Yale. He was examining the, the, the political system and the legal system such that people are free to believe what they want, but not necessarily act upon what they want. Okay? He was writing this 20 years ago. It's even more true now. Okay? In other words, it's okay, Marty Beal, that you believe certain things. Just don't let that affect anything outside of your head. Okay? Don't let it affect whom you serve, whom you sell anything to, or buy something from, or uh, what you might write, what you might say in public. You must be assimilated to the public viewpoint. Again, this notion, Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject to all things. So, Part of what Paul gets at, this is why it gets confusing, because now it really is Paul. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're not supposed to make this like heaven. In other words, he, Paul is not saying to the Philippians, it's time for you in Philippi to set up a theocracy by which you rule that community on the basis of God's law. But in reality, you're awaiting from heaven your real citizenship. You're awaiting Jesus, the Savior, who will 
by His power, transform all things. But you don't do it by revolution, and you don't do it by constitution. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is not where we live, precisely because we've been chosen by God. So what does that mean? I thought of, well, when I was driving to visit my parents, um, the joys of um, Vermont is that really the only radio stations I could get were NPR, which is good and bad. And they were talking about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Those of you who don't remember, he wrote, he wrote the Gulag Arpegagalo. I can't ever pronounce that word. It's one of those words that my mouth can't do. Solzhenitsyn was a decorated soldier in the, the Red Army during World War II. And while he was still serving on the front, one of the things he did is, you know, you write letters home. So he wrote a friend, and he had become disillusioned by the big man with the mustache, a.k.a. Joseph Stalin. He got reported for um, anti-Stalin propaganda, and he spent the next decade in a gulag. And so that famous book is about his experiences in the gulag, which included his conversion to Christ. But when he got out of the gulag, he wasn't just released, he was basically under house arrest in Kazakhstan, which at that point, of course, was part of the USSR. He, he wrote the book, and he snuck it out. He, I, think he, I think he microfilmed it, and snuck it out to a publisher in America and had it published. And when it was published in the 1970s, two, one thing, two things happened. Because the Soviets didn't like this, they declared him non-person, okay, stripped him of his citizenship rights, and placed him on a plane and sent him to America. Oh. Have a nice life. You don't like it here? Go to America. Most of us would go, yay. I don't think he went, yay. He got here. He hated it. He hated the language. He hated the customs. He hated the music. He hated just about everything, I think, except the money that he got from his books. And so he basically he, he went up to Vermont, lived in, in relative uh, isolation and, until Glasnost happens, and Gorbachev invites him to come back. And he could not wait to get back. There's a sense in which we're to be Alexander Solzhenitsyn. We're to struggle with the fact that this is not our home and we want to be somewhere else. Except in our case, it's not a place where we felt merely that we felt comfortable, even though it's oppressive, it is a place where we are free fully, spiritually. So, we have been transferred from one kingdom to another, and we have been qualified to be in this new kingdom by Christ through grace, as we see in Colossians 1. And that new citizenship, that true citizenship, is meant to have a greater influence upon us than the place where we live Again, we don't earn our heavenly citizenship by our good behavior. Our behavior is meant to be influenced by the fact of our heavenly citizenship. 
Like, who wants to be the bad American on, when you're in Europe, you know? Um, we don't want to be the bad Christian while we are aliens and strangers here in America. And so this kind of recasts our hopes and our dreams. And so our hopes are not in an earthly nation. Our hopes are not resting upon, well, you know, if we just get the right president, everything will be okay. Our hopes are not resting upon, if we just get the right health care system, everything will be okay. If we just get the right justice system, all these things will be cleared up and everything will be okay. It won't. It will just be different sins that are at play. Because all of these systems are run by sinners. And so, while we are in exile, I love this little thing by Sinclair Ferguson. He, meaning Christ, is worth living in exile for. And so I I thought a lot about the words of Chrysostom who said that if you are a Christian, no earthly city is yours. Even if we control the world, he said, we are still immigrants and foreigners because our citizenship is in heaven. He says, even if you're in power, your citizenship is still in heaven, and so you're still intended to live like an alien and stranger. And so in our country, we kind of had that experience. This was a very Christian-influenced country in many ways, and that influence is waning, as we've talked about uh, a number of times. Be not dismayed, because this is not our home. This is not where our citizenship lies. This is not where our primary allegiance lies. We're looking forward and ahead to something greater. And that's what Peter wants them to think about as they go through the hardship that they experience. And that is what I want you to think about as you experience hardship of all kinds. Well, as Christians, we've been chosen by God to be a part of His kingdom, but we still live in an earthly kingdom too. And so we're caught between this struggle like Maria was between those two kingdoms. There's a part of us that, that, that is caught up in wanting to preserve who we are in Christ, so to speak, to maintain faithfulness. There's an internal drive because of the Holy Spirit for preservation of our, of our identity. But there's also an external pressure, which sometimes can be internal too, of assimilation, because just like everyone else, we want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. We're going to buy those Jordache jeans. They were cool when I was in middle school. For the girls, not the guys. Levi's. Okay, but there's going to feel that pull, that tug. And if we don't feel that pull or tug, then something's not right. But as we feel that pull, we have to remember who we are with respect to God and who we are with respect to the people who are around us. And so belonging to God through grace in Jesus Christ, we are called to live in a way that pleases Him as aliens and strangers 
We have to be enough like those around us to function and communicate, but not so much that we are just like them in our values, commitments, and lifestyle. We're also going to explore that in Judges and Community Group. But this letter invites us deeper into that tension, this struggle within our hearts. Will you listen? Will you believe? Will you follow in faith to live in a live a faithful life and of an increasingly unfaithful place? Let's pray. Father, um, I look forward to the ways in which you will use this letter because it is the word of God, the ways you will use it in our lives, the ways in which you will change our thinking change our hearts by your Spirit, and therefore change how we live in the midst of this place. And so I ask that you would be granting us a deeper sense of our identity in Christ. And that that would not just remain in our heads, but it would kind of filter out into our into the whole of our beings. So that it begins to determine how we interact with this world. How we interact with people how do we interact with our friends and families? How do we interact with possessions? That that sense of our identity in Christ would captivate us. And Father, I ask that you would give us increasing wisdom about what it means to live in Tucson, in Arizona, in the United States, or wherever you might place us in the future. And we ask this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.